Tonight on Farage, I'll be joined by Andrew Neil. We'll talk about British universities taking communist Chinese money. Are they about to be taken over? We'll show you exclusive footage of jet skis, border force jet skis in the English Channel, practising turning around dinghies. We'll ask, is this feasible? And joining me on Talking Pints, Member of Parliament for the DUP, Ian Paisley. Well, the front page of today's Times, yet another story about Chinese money going into universities. And we're asked here, you know, Huawei, Huawei infiltrates Cambridge University. Is this a takeover? Now, let's get some perspective on the Chinese relationship with British universities. About £2 billion a year of tuition fees are paid by Chinese students to British Universities. Indeed, many of our top universities, 20% of their fee income comes from Chinese students. Well, as such, nothing wrong with that, you might say. What is more concerning is the extent to which Chinese companies have invested in shares, have given money to various colleges, have especially put money into areas of research and development. And, of course, one of the most prominent firms in this is the oh-so-controversial Huawei. A decision, if you remember, where Boris Johnson, to begin with, thought they should be involved with 5G rollout to some extent, and then later on, because of pressure, much of it from media and his own backbenches, took a different view. You can add to that the 17 schools that Chinese companies have now bought, and the fact that in China there is actually no such thing as a private company. The state, in the end controls everything. So I'm asking you tonight, is China trying to take us over? And I think it's something we should be deeply concerned about. Well, joining me to discuss this is somebody who I've got enormous respect for. It's a change of role here at GB News, and I've no doubt you can read plenty about that. But Andrew Neil is here as a GB News contributor and commentator, and I'm pleased to say he's going to regularly appear here on my show. Andrew, good evening. Good to speak to you again. Good evening to you. Nice to talk to you. Andrew, this story in the Times today, it's not the first time we've seen this. Just the extent to which Chinese companies are investing in British universities, buying up schools. Uh, should we be concerned or are these just normal commercial transactions? No, I think we should be concerned because vast sums of money are involved and that money comes with a price. I mean, China is trying to influence us. I don't think it's trying to take us over. That's not its end. But it's trying to make sure that our educational institutions, our academics, uh, our opinion formers, uh, see the world with uh, China's point of view in mind. This isn't just a British problem. The Confucius Institutes across the United States are doing the same in America. There's deep concern in Washington about this. It's a long-term plan. It's a slow plan. It doesn't happen overnight. And I think the, the, the thing that makes it more serious, the thing that makes it a cause of real concern, is that under President Xi, uh, China is moving back to a form of Mao's totalitarianism. This, this is not a country where I mean, it's never been a democracy, but it was for a while run by kind of an oligarchy. And there was a certain amount of debate. It wasn't as repressive uh, as it is now. 
Xi's taking it all the way back to the age of Mao in that regard. There's a massive crackdown uh, on everybody. It's a surveillance state. And you just wonder, given that it is effectively back to not an authoritarian state, but a totalitarian state now, do we really want our universities to be so close to it or to be flooded with its money? Well, I agree entirely. And yet, these are the same universities, of course, who back in 2016, during the referendum, 21 vice-chancellors, without even consulting their boards, said we should vote Remain. Um, and that was because they were getting money from the European Union. So they were happy to take money from the EU, happy to take money from China. Does this expose a bigger problem with British universities? Because whenever I've been in America, I've seen the most extraordinary legacies that families have given American universities or where private companies in America are investing directly. Is there something wrong with the thinking of our universities? And I ask that because, you know, when you look at the top 20 universities in the world, you know, we are still very well represented, aren't we? Well, of the top 20 universities in the world, 16 are American and the other four are British. And if you go to the top 20, there are more British... Top 30, there are more... British come in too. So we're clearly a target, and our top universities are international institutions. I mean, I think the vice chancellors of the universities you referred to were going to vote for Remain, whether or not there was Chinese money. That's the social group they came from, and it was overwhelmingly Remain. You're right that America gets a ton of private uh, finance. They've yeah. got these massive uh, holdings. I think Harvard has, a, uh, has, has bigger reserves than every other British university put together. So they've got a ton of money, but it hasn't stopped them from taking Chinese money too. And as I said, there's concern there. Our universities are not, don't have the funds available uh, that the American ones do, which in a way makes us more vulnerable. If somebody comes along with a big Chinese checkbook, then they are more likely to take this money. As I say, this is a long game on the part of China's. This is an attempt to influence thinking over the long run. This is an attempt to get us to see the world more through Chinese eyes. The aim of China in the long term is to recast the world order away from the rules-based American system, more to a world order that is in keeping with the way China sees the world. The whole Belt and Road uh, play is for that. That is investing in Africa and Asia and so on. This move into our universities, our seats of learning, it isn't just that. They're in other institutions as well. It's an attempt just bit by bit to build more influence as they become more economically powerful. They know that many decision makers, many influence, uh, influential people, opinion formers, are hostile to China, and then in the long run, they're trying to change that. My own view is they won't succeed. My own view is also that universities need to be a lot more careful when they take this money and to make sure there's no strings attached. I mean, I do think that you've seen a kind of um, closing of criticism of China among academics. They're less likely to want to do that now. They know in the end of the day, you know, he who pays the piper calls the tree. Well, of course, of course. But That's this, Andrew, a long-run problem for us. 
This goes way beyond academia, because, I mean, just taking Huawei as one example, if you look at the people that have served on their advisory board over the last few years, you get Sir Michael Rake, the former president of the CBI, you get Lord Brown of Maddingley, the former chief executive of BP, uh, Sir Andrew Kahn, who was very close to Neil Kennock when he was at the European Commission, and the list goes on and on and on of very, very senior business and political figures that in some way have found themselves in the pay of Chinese companies over the course of the last few years. So, yes, it's way beyond academia. The question, I guess, is, what should we do? Should we try, should we really try to make sure that Chinese companies have less influence in the United Kingdom? Or do we just have to accept, as Vince Cable and Stanley Johnson on this programme have argued with me in recent weeks, that this is the way of the world, that China is the economic future, and we simply have to face up to that. Well, the first thing I'd say, Nigel, is never underestimate the ability of the British establishment bought for gold. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and to sell access like that, it seems to be happening at the various highest levels. Uh, the other day, I mean, I'm waiting on my invitation to go and have dinner with Prince Charles too, but I haven't given him any money yet. I think the second thing I would say is that a lot of what you described there, which all is exactly true, it happened at a time when our attitudes to China were different. Remember, under David Cameron, we were going to be China's best friends. Indeed, until Donald Trump came along in America, uh, America was going to be China's best friend too. We were going to live closely together, work together to our mutual benefit. And then, as I say, things changed with the arrival of President Xi. And this suddenly became not a country that was opening up, was become more liberal, was more open to the market economy, to foreign investment, all the rest. It was a country that was becoming more and more totalitarian. I mean, as you know, they've just cracked down on all their own um, uh, high-tech companies. They've just, they've just uh, had a real go at all of them. They're putting uh, some businessmen in jail now, local government leaders too, because they let house prices get too high. There is a kind of element of Marxism coming back in, or socialism is one leading uh, Chinese intellectual code, coming back in to the Chinese way of doing things. This is a much less... Um, attractive proposition now. And I think both in London and in Washington, D.C., and even in Berlin now, you begin to see the Western nations beginning to think, hey, we should yes. get too close. We better pull back from this. We don't want to be in bed with a government that locks up and commits a genocide against its Muslims and, and, and it's a surveying state that monitors every single move that the Chinese people take to. We are going through, I think, a reset in our relations with China. And I would think if you and I were to talk in two, three, four years' time again, I don't think you would see the kind of names that you've just given yeah. having the same relationship with China again. I think that will become very difficult. Well, I hope that's right. And I know that you and I have rarely seen eye to eye on the issue of Donald Trump. Um, but in this particular case, did Trump do the world a favour in waking us up to what communist China had become under Xi? Well, I think that what Mr. Trump, in his usual rather uh, um, sort of bull in a China shop way, uh, uh, and, and he was far too concerned with tariffs on China, but he recognized, I think, what was happening in China, that uh, the idea that uh, there would be a very close coupling between China and America was working to China's advantage, yeah. but not to America's advantage. 
that things had to change. The President Obama had done very little about it. He thought he could smooth talk the Chinese. It didn't work. There was a sea change with Mr. Trump in the White House. And hey, uh, it's now the new consensus in Washington. You will know as well as I do, Washington, uh, 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 Nigel, that there are very, Washington is a very divisive place these days. There are very few things on which there's a consensus. But there is now a consensus uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans in taking a far tougher line with the Chinese. Yeah. That started with Mr. Trump. Yep. Mr. Biden was a slow learner in getting to where he is now. But if you look at the people, and I know a couple of them, of the China advisors around Mr. Biden, they're pretty hard line now. There's a sea change in yeah. America's view of China. Yeah, no, there really is. Andrew Neil, thank you ever so much for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you at the same time next week. Thank you. Well, we had much comment there about America, about American universities, and indeed about Washington, D.C. Well, I'm going to go straight to Washington, D.C., to speak to a man who has put years of his life into studying China and trying to work out what we can do about it. His name is Michael Pillsbury. He's director of the Centre on Chinese Strategy at the Hudson Institute and author of the 100-year marathon, China's secret strategy to replace America as the global superpower. Michael, good afternoon in your time and welcome to GB News. Thank you. Before I get on to universities and education, um, I'm very struck by one thing. With the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban taking mm -hmm. over, I noticed that within about eight days, the Taliban made an announcement that they saw the relationship with communist China as their key strategic alliance and that the copper mine that had been active in Afghanistan mm -hmm. with substantial Chinese money was open again and that now the lithium reserves that exist in that country without which we can't build electric cars at the moment uh, is now open to the Chinese. Has Joe Biden just given a gift to communist China? Well, of course, I thought the way Joe Biden sees it himself, he claims he's just reorienting American attention and forces toward China. That's why he's pulled out of Afghanistan, he says. I'm afraid the public does not see it that way. The public sees it just as you framed it, Nigel, that he's essentially giving a lot of very valuable reserves and some, a geopolitical air force base uh, to China. Uh, Joe Biden and his team have been very disappointed in the public reaction to Afghanistan because he's dropped in the polls really quite significantly. Uh, they had enjoyed quite a high approval rating until yeah. Afghanistan. And adding the China angle to it, frankly, uh, makes it even more humiliating to our country. Because our leaders are saying that China is the number one threat or challenge to America in the whole world. And yet, and yet, yeah, yes. they've, opened the, they've opened the door. Now, now, we've been talking, Michael, about Cambridge University, but we could have talked about other universities yes. where Huawei and other companies are more than happy to invest in chairs, more than happy to invest in laboratories, research of all kinds. Um, and as a result of that, we do in some colleges see a slightly different teaching um, of what perhaps China genuinely represents. I know that in America, and I've spoken at many American universities, there is huge private money, big legacies that come in, but Andrew Neil, our previous guest, was making the point that American universities take Chinese money too. Is that right? 
Uh, yes, it's true to a degree, but and I generally agreed with your new GB contributor, Andrew Neal. Let me make that clear first. I generally agreed with all of his points, except he mispronounces President Xi's name. Since I spent five years learning Mandarin, I think I have to correct him. Not <laughs> President Xi, it's President Xi, just like S-H-E-E. But our American universities are beginning to wake up to both the Confucius Institute contracts and another series of contracts that Huawei and other companies have made uh, with the universities that are legal, but they're very scary in how targeted they are. The Chinese seem to have a way of knowing where patents are coming from, where new innovations are coming from that may have a huge uh, global market for the product. Then they sign agreements, sometimes right with a physics department or a chemistry department at a leading university, that they will have the right of first refusal to take a look at their research results or even know in real time what their students and professors are doing. And this has become very dangerous, according to the FBI director in several speeches, that our seed corn, as he called it, our seed corn for the next generation of innovation is being stolen from us uh, more or less legally by the Chinese in a very targeted manner. Now, that's very interesting. Michael, you have had a huge influence on this debate in America. Your work had a big influence on, on Donald Trump. And as Andrew Neil said previously, you know, Joe Biden is now following. There is a very different debate going on in America mm -hmm. about what China represents. We haven't quite got there yet in the UK, but I'm pleased to say there's a growing chorus amongst our media mm -hmm. and backbench politicians of concern. But China is a very, very big, mighty, powerful economic structure yes. uh, with whom we've become dependent in many, many cases, for goods. Given that you've... We have too. Yeah, given that you've written your book about the long-term game that China is mm -hmm. playing, I want to ask you, Michael, what can we do to reduce our dependence on communist China? Well, the first thing is an assessment of just how dependent we are. Uh, the US Congress has already begun to demand such an assessment uh, from the intelligence community and the Pentagon. Uh, a lot of people were quite surprised during the coronavirus uh, uh, panic, shall we say, over, over PPE and yep. gear, various things that we thought we were making ourselves, including pharmaceuticals, which all had been outsourced to China. So the study, the preliminary results show that in quite a few areas, uh, we are dependent on Chinese manufacturing um, far more than anybody realized. So I don't know if Great Britain has done that, if the parliament has demanded a study of just how dependent you are on China. But that's the first step. The second step is to begin to limit uh, and have incentives and even uh, banning comp American companies from getting so deeply involved with China. The third step is to try to grow faster. This is what Senator Schumer's bill that's passed the Senate, but not the House, uh, several billion dollars to try to expedite our own science and technology to really boost the budget of the National Science Foundation more than double it, so that this innovation seed corn will develop more rapidly in America. So it's like a two-pronged approach. Keep them from okay. stealing it, yep. but develop it faster ourselves. Okay, well, we, I think we've got some lessons to learn. Michael Pillsbury, thank you for coming and joining us. We'd love to come back to you at some point in the future because China is going to be the biggest strategic global issue for the next few years. Let's talk domestic for a moment. Today, the UK's chief medical officers have said that children aged 12 to 15 should be offered a COVID vaccine. It means around 3 million children would be eligible for the jab. 
Following concern about a rise in cases following the summer holidays, the chief medical officers have said healthy children will be offered a single dose of Pfizer and the rollout will begin as soon as possible. Well, all of this, despite the fact the JCVI couldn't make their minds up. But the other story that really interests me is what is going to happen about vaccine passports. Um, and, and it really is confusing. But Vaccines Minister Nadeem Sahawi said this the other day. So we are looking at, um, by the end of September, when everyone has had the opportunity to be fully uh, uh, vaccinated uh, for uh, the uh, large venues, venues that um, could uh, uh, end up you know, causing a real spike in infections um, uh, where we need to use um, the uh, certification process. So that was a few days ago, and it's absolutely clear the government are preparing for us to have vaccine passports for many activities this autumn. Then yesterday, up pops the health secretary, just to make things really clear in our minds, Sajid Javid. You asked about vaccine passports, so I think it's fair to say, I think most people probably instinctively don't like the idea. I mean, I, I've never liked the idea of saying to people, you must show your papers or something to, to do you know, what, what is just an everyday activity. But we were right to, you know, to properly look at it, to look at the evidence. But you're not uh, doing but, Well, what I can say is that we've looked at it properly. And whilst we should keep it in reserve as a potential option, I'm pleased to say that we will not be going ahead with plans for vaccine passports. Ah, so we will not be going ahead now with vaccine passports, the political hokey-cokey. Perhaps Boris Johnson uh, today made things clearer for us. We've got to do everything that's uh, right to protect the, the country, but the way things are going at the moment, we're very confident in the steps that, uh, that we've taken. I'll be setting out a lot more uh, tomorrow. I'll be giving you a, a full update on, on the plans for the, uh, for the autumn and the winter. That doesn't seem ruling it out. What measures can we expect to see stay and what things will go? What's that PCR you, test I, I just wouldn't want you to jump to any conclusions. Wait and see what, uh, what, uh, what we say tomorrow. And uh, we're, we're sticking with the package we have. So there you are. Confused? Well, I certainly am. In fact, I haven't really got a clue. I don't know what's going on. It's certainly not leadership, is it? Well, joining me is GB News' political editor, Darren McCaffrey. I hope you're not hoping I'm going to shed some light on well, <laughs> what you can tell me is what, the plan, what is planned for tomorrow. Uh, so we're going to get this big announcement tomorrow in yep. what the government are going to do through the autumn and winter. The kind of toolbox of measures that they're going to keep in place, potentially to use if things take a turn for the worst in terms of infections. You have to say infections, actually, are starting to down a little uh, across the UK after somewhat of a rise in recent weeks. Yeah. Uh, but, frankly, one of the tools the government seemed to be keeping in place is this idea of a vaccine passport. Uh, Boris Johnson seemed to want to have his cake and eat it today to some regard, saying that both Sajid Javid and Nadeem Sahari were both uh, right. I think, in the end, what's happened is that they were due to be brought in at the end of the month in England for things like nightclubs and, and for lodging. And, and Scotland are doing this, Scotland aren't they? is going to do this. Yes. I think the government at Westminster is going to say uh, that they have no intention of bringing it in any time soon, but it potentially could happen. Obviously, a lot of Conservative MPs 
not happy about that. Other measures that look likely to stick around are things like the possibility of mask wearing, because they say and suggest that's better than social distancing for the economy, and obviously that you would have to isolate if you contract the virus. Uh, though some of the measures will disappear. In the end, though, the big question is about whether we will face another lockdown or not. The government repeatedly saying they do not foresee that, but, and this is the big but, yeah. they are not ultimately ruling it out. Darren, thank you. And, but frankly, folks, why would we believe a word that they say? They constantly contradict each other. This is not leadership. And a promise from Boris? Well, what's a promise from Boris worth these days? All I will say on vaccine passports is that I will not be carrying one, whatever the circumstances, if they want me to show a vaccine passport to go out for a meal or go to the local pub. I am not going to do it. In a moment, we will talk about an offshoot of Extinction Rebellion closing down the M25 this morning. Do they really think they're helping their own cause? We're debating, does China have too much influence? Is it trying to take over? I've been asking for your reactions, and M on email says, these universities are hypocrites when taking down statues of our ancestors for alleged bad practices, but then taking money from today's dictatorships. Yeah, I have to say, you've got a very, very good point there. Fanny on Twitter says, our government is too scared of China to react. Well, too scared or or we've just become too dependent. And Peter, on email, says, what worries me is China wanting to steal our Oxbridge cutting-edge research. Well, this was the point that uh, Mr Pillsbury made and made it so well. Now, I've been talking about excessive Chinese influence, not just in our universities, but across public life in Britain. Last week, Sir Kenneth Elisa, part of the Buckingham Palace, palace entourage to the Queen, made the most astonishing comment, political comment, on behalf of the Queen, when he said the Queen supports Black Lives Matter. I simply couldn't believe it. I'm sure the Queen supports equality, and I think the Queen, through her role in the Commonwealth, has probably done more to bring different races and different colours and different peoples together than almost anybody that's ever lived. But the thought that she would support an organisation that wanted to defund the police and was Marxist, I thought wide of the mark. Which got me thinking, who really is this Sir Kenneth Elisa? Well, you'll be interested to know, he serves as a non-executive director on the board of Huawei. So we have a board member of Huawei deep in the heart of Buckingham Palace. It just goes to show the extent to which communist China has infiltrated nearly all of our top institutions. Now, an Afghan refugee suspected of raping and killing a 13-year-old has managed to slip into Britain after crossing the channel on a boat and using a fake name to claim asylum. It has emerged he was housed in a hotel funded by British taxpayers for almost a fortnight before he was arrested. And when I see commentators from other news channels and I listen to political figures... The vast majority talk about desperate, poor refugees crossing the English Channel. I've never doubted for a moment, never doubted for a moment, that, of course, there were some genuine people amongst that number. But I've been face-to-face -face with hundreds of people crossing the Channel in these boats, both on shore and at sea, and many that I've met 
frankly, have been pretty aggressive young men that I've been concerned about. I've said all the way through there are security concerns here. Remember, there is a trial going on in Paris right now over the atrocities that happened in the Bataclan Theatre in Paris just a few years ago. And of the eight men that committed those barbarities, five had crossed the Mediterranean and got into France. So it is a massive issue. It is rising up the political agenda. And Priti Patel, last week, after quite a row with the French, said that we would turn back the boats. And I wondered, was she serious? Well, now I have for you exclusive pictures of what happened in a quiet corner of the English Kent coast today. And they actually were practising. So what can you see? You can see a border force vessel. You can see a dinghy. But it's not a migrant dinghy. There are 20 volunteers on the dinghy. And you can see jet skis. So there goes the migrant dinghy. And one of the jet skis goes up to the starboard side of that dinghy. And you can see the intention is to try and turn the dinghy around. <clears throat> now, that's what he's trying to do there. And yet it would appear that the dinghy just continues, but in wake and water considerably rougher and choppier than the, on than the ongoing sea conditions. So this is exclusive footage. Nobody else has seen this. It was taken uh, by one of my spies on the Kent coast this morning. Um, so it does show that, uh, you know, to give credit where it's due, it does show they're actually trying this and they're trialling this. Now, to debate this, I'm joined by GB News's Home Affairs and Security Editor. Yes, it's his first day here and it's his first time on screen. Mark White, welcome to this programme. Nigel, thank you. Delighted to be here. And to GB News. You have studied, amongst all the security issues, this channel situation for, for many, many years. Um, Look, I'm all for turning the boats around. I'm all for getting rid of the Human Rights Act and the ECHR and being able to deport people. I want this problem solved. But that film did show there are some practical difficulties, didn't it? It's going to be immensely difficult. I think the exclusive footage that you've managed to obtain here does, as you say, show that Pretty Patel appears to be serious, at least in trying to implement this turn-back policy in a limited fashion, at least. And it's going to be in a limited fashion because they know that they can't turn all of these very flimsy boats back. They are saying that they're going to target the bigger vessels, the ones that are more rigid, inflatable vessels. But again, you've been out in the channel many times. They are in the minority. The vast majority of the vessels that are coming across oh, yeah. are pretty flimsy in nature. They're absolutely packed to the gunnels. Uh, and any border force officer on board one of those cutters or other border force vessel, looking at that, is going to be a pretty brave uh, officer if he decides that he's going to intervene and try and turn that round. You can see from the footage, though, that you were showing what the tactics are likely to be. Yes. The jet skis there, yeah. almost shepherding, if they can, the vessels to turn around and go back. But if you've got... Uh, a, a crew, a crew, I say a crew, a, a number of passengers on board these flimsy vessels whose goal is to reach British waters, determined not to do that, then it's going to be very difficult. And also, I think the thing to add here is it doesn't take a genius to know exactly what the people traffickers, 
those criminal networks are going to do. They're nothing if not adaptable. They're just going to wow. make sure that every vessel they put into the channel is as flimsy as can be and packed to the gunnel so that no Border Force officer is ever going to... Well, go many of them now are these new purpose-built, 11-metre, 36-foot boats... Uh, they've got plywood bottoms that have been literally glued in. I yeah. mean, they fall to pieces shortly after yeah. they hit the Kent beaches. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a very, very pr huge practical problem. And also, the boats are now taking off from as far down the coast as Latouke. Yeah. So, I mean, not that I'm a great fan of the French Member of Parliament for Calais, but the point that there is a very, very large coastline is true. So, Mark, what happens next? Because she is under massive political pressure. She's unlikely to survive unless she does something. Yeah, I think they will probably go ahead with trying this on some of those sturdier vessels. Yeah. But as I say, you get the criminal gangs adapting their tactics. So the yeah. vessels that go out there will be the flimsy ones. They want to make sure, obviously, that those that are paying them the money get into British waters and are picked up as well. And, of course, if there is a tragedy, well... Yeah is going to be very, yeah. very difficult well, for Priti Patel there. We should add as well, the French, you say you've clearly no love for the, uh, the French member in Cali, yeah. uh, but there is an onus on them. They're getting £54 million pounds of course. Another £54 million. Yeah. Yeah. But on top of that, they also have a duty to protect life. Now, people are leaving their shores to embark on a very dangerous mm. journey. It shouldn't just take money from the British government they should be doing it for anyway. them to act. No, it's absolutely in their interest Mark, to do that. Mark, I've been, I've been running this story for a very long time, trying to wake up the British press. We're going to speak a lot more in the next few weeks. Thank you. Now, motorists were the latest to be targeted by climate change protesters. Yes, this morning during rush hour, a splinter group of Extinction Rebellion calling themselves Insulate Britain blocked five parts of the M25, causing significant tailbacks. More than 90 of them have been arrested. Joining me now is Liam Norton, spokesman for Insulate Britain. Well, Liam, good evening. Are you proud of the fact that today you inconvenience people and hurt people's businesses? Well, I agree with you that we uh, inconvenience people and we hurt people's businesses. I agree with that, yeah. Right. So are you proud of doing that? And do you actually think this helps your cause? It's not about whether I'm proud with it, but I agree with your statement that that's what we did. Well, I asked you another question. Do you think, by behaving like this, that it helps your cause? Well, it got me on GB News speaking to you. Oh, I see. So it's all. I think what I think. I think. I think. I think what the. I think the important question here is why are eighty-two-year-old pensioners sitting on the road today, Nigel? Have you thought about that? Um, no. Well, it could be that they're deluded. I mean, that's, well, I'll tell you why. I I'll mean, it could be they're deluded, that, or it could be any reason. But the point I'm making to you is: to win public arguments, you need to have general support and sympathy. And I'm putting it to you: what you're doing is alienating people. No, what we're doing is coming up with a realistic demand to get out of the crisis that we find ourselves in. And this is a reality that we find ourselves in at the moment in terms of the climate crisis. And what Insulate Britain are proposing is a realistic plan to get out of it. Insulating our homes will give the best value for money in terms of lowering emissions. It's going to provide hundreds of thousands of proper jobs, meaningful jobs. And it's going to stop thousands of our pensioners dying in their homes each year because they have to choose between food or heat. 
which I'm sure you'll agree, Nigel, is an absolute stain <laughs> well, I on would. this nation's I, conscience. No, Liam, I would. And, and one of the problems here, of course, is we've subsidised green energy so much that electricity prices are about 25% higher than they should be. Liam, time is very short. I'm pleased to have you on because what you did today is newsworthy. You seem very proud of that fact. I mean, you could go out and do even more awful things and get publicity if that's what you want. Um, so, what, I mean, how long will this campaign go on for? I'll tell you what's awful, Nigel, is the fact that people were drowning to death in tube trains in New York. Old aid pensioners in yes. Germany last week were drowning to death. What we're seeing at the moment is an absolute emergency, and we're not right. seeing the government doing anything realistic to get ourselves out of it. We are in a reality here, right? A physical reality, and that's the state that we're in. And what we're well. talking about is we're <laughs> asking Boris to get on with the job. He's dithering about and not doing anything. No, he's not. As no, he's not. Min- as soon he's as actually, state- he's actually moving more quickly than many other governments. Liam, I'm going to have to love you and yeah. leave you because we're out of time. In a moment, I'll be talking pints with Ian Paisley from the DUP. Well, joining me on Talking Pints today is Ian Paisley from the DUP. Ian, cheers. Cheers. Welcome to GB News. Yeah. Hmm. How come I don't have a pint? This, well, is this some European measurement? This is this is it's, what this is know. what you ordered. So you know, <laughs> I'm glad I you mean, made that clear. We give, you, we give you pretty much what you wanted. <laughs> well Jacob Rees-Mogg even bought his own cider in. So there you are. Very good. Ian, member of Parliament, active politician. I just must ask you to begin with. How difficult was it to go into politics, given just this giant figure? I mean, giant in every way that your father was. Difficult in some ways, easy in other ways. Um, you know the hardest thing in politics is to create a name or a brand. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was born with it, essentially. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, a name recognition immediately. Mm-hmm. So I had possibly the, the, the huge benefit of that. I also had, my, uh, Nigel, the, the, the actual bug I wanted to do it, and I think that's important. You have to want to do politics. And the fact that I got an insider's view on what politics really looked like, helping people, working for the community, being an antenna of of issues, and also being able to advocate for them. I I, I saw that and saw the skills that were needed. Um, So there was huge advantages, Mm. huge disadvantages, and automatically you're stereotyped. Automatically, people know everything about you, even though they've never met you. Oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah, that, yeah. That, but that's... I'm an expert. Yeah, yeah. And most, <laughs> most people get that, you know, who are in it. So uh, I had those plus and minuses, but ultimately I wanted to do this. And my father was a huge encouragement. And saying, if you want to do it, make sure you, every day you wake up, you want to do this. Do you want to do it? No, no. But that, I, it's, it's, it's no a, dress rehearsal in life. It's, it's an interesting answer, because it, I, I just sort of thought to it. I thought to myself, it must be really hard. But yeah. clearly, it wasn't particularly. Ian, Northern Ireland... <sighs> You know, decades of, I, I think, violence and unpleasantness on a level that a lot of people in England don't fully, don't, still don't fully yeah. perhaps understand. And it was pretty be awful. Yeah. You, obviously, on the, on the unionist side of the divide, when you look back at the Belfast Agreement, you know, and I with no direct family linked to Northern Ireland, but I've always thought it was an integral part of the United Kingdom and should be treated as such, and I was appalled to see that increasingly it wasn't being. I had reservations about the Belfast Agreement. It seemed to me letting out uh, that number of convicted murderers, some of whom had served as little as 18 months in prison. I had my reservations about it. And I know that Northern Ireland's got some problems now, we'll come to them. But how do you now feel 25 years on? 
I mean, it was, you know, a, a, the unionist community had to pay quite a big price. Uh, unions paid a massive price. Um, and we paid that price basically to get people to stop killing us. I mean, that's the long and the short of it. And when people stop killing you, you actually can start getting on with each other. And that, that ultimately is, is what happened, that uh, there was a huge compromise made to get peace. And when you take yourself out of Northern Ireland and try to take the overview of all peace pr processes around yeah. the world, you either have a situation where you wipe the other side out and still have problems, or you come to a compromise and still have problems. So there's no easy way in making peace. No. It's a slow process. It's drip by drip. It's step by step. That's what's been happening. And 20, 25 years after the peace process, of course, a lot of things that we said have come true. Um, we still don't have the sort of stability that we'd like. But thankfully, we have a foundation stone upon which we can build a political yeah. process. And, and Belfast, you know... It's buzzing, actually. I mean, I've, the last few years I've been in Belfast and it's felt like a British city. Yeah, yeah. It hasn't felt under siege yeah. um, as, as it was when I first went there in the sort of early middle 90s. And the Titanic quarter and, and, and all the extraordinary things that have happened. So it was worth it. The compromises yeah, but, were but worth we have, it. We're practically full employment to a lot of things. You know, we're very, very low unemployment levels. Now, that's because we have a huge public sector. But we, we very much are a British country, very much a British town feel to it. Mm. And despite the fact that people have a different identity. I mean, a large part of the community hmm. has a, has a yeah. nationalist identity. And there yet, still is a small B. And yet you all play place. rugby together. Yeah. How does that work? How does, how does Northern Ireland, with its Protestant-Catholic divide, its unionist-nationalist divide, the Republic, part of the United Kingdom, one's in the EU, yeah. one's out of the EU, how is it, when it comes to rugby, you all get together? And there's no protocol. I mean, it works. <laughs> it works. Well, well, that's the point. <laughs> but, but, it works. But isn't that fascinating? It, it is fascinating. Well, of course, sport's more important than anything else. <laughs> well, clearly. You know, you know and, and, and ah, well, sport, sport does bring people together. It is a magical thing. I mean, yeah. look at the biggest, I suppose the most healing symbol of a sports person in Northern Ireland is probably someone like Mary Peters, Dame Mary Peters, yep. where she's brought the entire community together. No one asks, what side she on or is? She's on the side of Northern Ireland and the young people of Northern Ireland. Yeah. And you get that, I think, when you look at our sports people, Johnny Ray, the world motorcycle yeah. champion, five times world motorcycle champion. You get all that uh, with, with all of our, our sporting stars. And little Northern Ireland has, and I say little, because, you, you know... Mm -hmm. We're only the size of Greater Manchester. You know, I mean, it's not in population terms yeah. enormous. What is it, 1.7 one... million? Yeah, yeah. 1.7 million. Yeah. And yet you've produced three major golf winners. Yeah. Graham McDowell. Darren Clark and, of course, Rory McIlroy. So, yeah, uh, and, 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 and I guess they have to be slightly careful what they say, but, again, sport brings people together in the most remarkable way. The DUP, I mean, how can I describe to an audience that don't understand this? I would say that the official Ulster Unionist Party were like the traditional Conservative Party in this country, and the DUP, which your father founded, was a bit like the UKIP, really. <laughs> you know, challenging the establishment conservatives. The charismatic figure at its head. Well, but they... <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you what, I once did a public event with uh, your dad, and it was a group of workers that had come to Strasbourg, and we were the only two MEPs that went to meet them, mm. because they were in the tobacco industry, so, you know, yeah. others wouldn't have. And I have to say, you know, that uh, sharing... I say a platform. We both stood up on a wall to speak to these trade union representatives that come. And, and, and I have to say, I did feel a bit like a shrinking violet compared <laughs> next to Yes, him. he was a, he was but, a huh, huge person. And a really, really big voice, yeah, you know. Yeah. But no, Ian, it's, it, it is really interesting looking at Northern Ireland. Um, the DUP, as I say, was like the UKIP in a sense. You challenged quite a 
stuffy Conservative Party who were not particularly in touch with working people in Northern Ireland. And Bush, the DUP, goes from nothing and it grows and it grows and it grows and then suddenly it becomes, mm. you know, the biggest party in Northern Ireland. Uh, and, and Sinn Féin grows as well. But the DUP has been the dominant party in Northern Ireland for a long time. Yeah. If we believe uh, polling commissioned by the Belfast Telegraph... It suggests that support for the DUP has now collapsed mm. to 13%, mm. putting you behind not just the official Ulster Unionist Party, but the traditional yeah, yeah. Uh, Unionist Party as well. So what well, you say smaller parties, you're the small party yeah. now. Yeah. So what's going on? I think there's well, I mean, it's, it's a catastrophic loss of trust. Yeah, yeah well, first of all, you know about polling. Um, so some of the polling, we, we do take a bit of a pinch of salt with it, but you have to be realistic. Ian, I know about polling and yeah. good weeks and bad weeks, yeah, yeah, yeah. but this actually has been a trend. Yeah, you have to, exactly, you have to actually take this on board and address it, and we're trying so to. You thought you covered a friendly drink, didn't you? Yeah, but... no, 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 I agree with you. I mean, to ignore that would be stupid, yeah. and you ignore stuff like that at your peril, yeah. and politics must be about being realistic, it must also be about being in touch. And losing some of that touch with the community, probably we've been a victim of our own success. We've grown so fast, so quickly. We also have, unfortunately, because of our, our period of time in supporting the government, which we would hope would have delivered Brexit on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom, suddenly found that Northern Ireland was expendable. Yeah. And we're at the end of that punishment because people want Brexit to work. Even those who didn't vote for it, they still want a deal that works for them. And now it's costing Northern Ireland £850 million a year to administer a protocol that is ruining the economy of Northern Ireland. Now, it just doesn't ruin the unionist bit of the economy. Hmm. It ruins all of the economy. But just, just share, and the government's got to fix this. Just share with our viewers you know, some of the difficulties of getting goods from the UK into Northern Ireland. I mean, it's almost where do you start? So there's now massive friction on anything coming in to Northern Ireland, which is just another city in the United Kingdom, now faces essentially a border check, a border crossing. That is wrong. So internal trade, I remember we do 70% of our trade with the rest of GB. Yeah. That is now facing friction. And that is causing delays. It's causing some companies saying, this is too complicated. Because we can't export stuff. We can't export saplings, tree saplings into if, Northern if, Ireland. If so Northern soil, Ireland can't join the Queen's Canopy. If there's British soil project for on British plants yeah. coming into Northern Ireland, they're, according to the EU, contaminated. They can't come into Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland has to be a proxy zone for the EU's goods. And we cannot damage the European single market, but we can destroy the UK. And this all negotiated. This by all Boris Johnson. Well, well, the man who we kept well, in government. Well, and Theresa May. And Michel Barnier. Yes. Who now says he God. wants French sovereignty. Oh, return. don't start me on him. We'll skip Theresa May. She's not mm. worth discussing, in my view. But Boris Johnson, you're quite right, there was an arrangement whereby the DUP did keep the Conservatives with a majority. Yeah. And the thanks you got for it were Boris came to one of your party conferences and spoke and gave absolute assurances yeah. that there would not be effectively a border in the Irish Sea. And then he you, went out and put about one. That's did Boris lie to you? Or, mm. amidst, you know, over a thousand pages of document which is quite, you know, don't forget, the Prime Minister is the Prime Minister, but he's got a load of people negotiating on his behalf. Yep. Did the Prime Minister lie to you? Or is this just detail that he didn't fully understand? I, I, I think you have to give him the benefit of the doubt on Mondegree and that he probably didn't read it. 
Um, but he was aware that this was a problem. This was flagged up from October 2019. He knew there was a problem. I looked him in the eye and I said, Boris, you cannot let this happen. And uh, he said, oh, it'll be fixed, don't worry, it'll be fixed. Mm. No, no, you can't allow it to happen. Because putting <coughs> the toothpaste back in the tube is impossible. You, you can't allow it to happen. Now we're trying to really pick up those pieces and to fix our economy. And a little bit of wonder, the public then feels switched off, alienated, yeah. concerned. But of course, the problem for the unionist people, and small unionist people, not big unionist people, small unionist people, the problem for them is if they don't vote for our party, if they split our vote, you'll then have a Sinn Féin government and you'll then have a border poll for a united Ireland. And we'll have the same problems that Scotland's going through about campaigning for well, breaking you, up well, the you say that. union. You say that, but actually, whenever we see polling hmm. um, in Northern Ireland... It's much better. On, they, they like on, the union, they don't like unionists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the, there is a significant number of, of Catholic-born people in Northern Ireland who yeah. would not vote to join the Republic, who don't want to join the Euro. Hmm. So I don't... I don't, I, I don't but feel... it does cause a trend. Yeah. Cause a no, 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 I've, I've got to listen, stop that. I'm, I'm not being complacent yeah, about yeah. it. I'm not yeah. being complacent about it. But Boris Johnson may have lied or may not have lied. Mm. But in a sense, the DUP, were you straight enough with the Irish electorate? Oh, I th oh absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, it's, if you're betrayed, that's one thing. If you're doing the betrayal, that's something completely different. Yeah. I do not believe at any point that we tried to betray or even attempted to, or were part of a betrayal of the British people in Northern Ireland, what happened was we were betrayed. We gave our trust to something, and we were betrayed. So the Northern Ireland... Look, and, you know, you and I were both passionate about the Brexit. Absolutely. And I remember I spoke to you on the day that we left the European Union, 31st of January, 2020. The wee hours of the morning. And, yeah, yeah. Well, that, no, the wee hours of the morning was when we spoke about the... Uh, on the night of the referendum. Yeah. But I was in Parliament Square yeah. with a huge celebration going on, and you, you weren't there because it, there wasn't much to celebrate in Northern Ireland, and you fully understood that. So the Northern Irish Protocol, I call it Barnier's poison pill. Mm -hmm. I doubt Boris read the detail. He's not yeah. that sort of bloke, frankly. If we just say, that's it, you know, just as Ursula von der Leyen, who threatened to put back a hard border in, yes. the, in Ireland... In January. I, I mean, you know, this is, this is extraordinary. But if we say, right, the Northern Irish Protocol isn't working out, it's border-border with inside the, the territory of the United Kingdom, it's threatened its integrity, it's madness that one lorry load of goods can need 700 pages of paperwork or whatever it may be... We are calling time on it. You know, we're going to trigger the clause and call time on it. The problem is, the threat against that is that we might find the French even more uncooperative in the English Channel. Mm -hmm. We might find a trade war with France. Yeah. Um, but you're going to see the institutions in Northern Ireland collapse. We're on a ticking time bomb with the political institutions that have created the peace, the stability. Is it under threat, Ian? They are, it's seriously under is threat. Is peace under threat? Well, when you have no political institutions, you then have zero political leadership. You then create the space for people who want to come out onto the streets will come out onto the streets. Mm. Now, we're saying loudly and clearly to the government, sort this out. You've set a time frame for the middle to the end of October. Sort it out by then. Okay. Otherwise, you've collapsed institutions. And your message, that. finally, your message to Boris Johnson? Boris Johnson, pull your finger out and sort this problem out as a priority. This isn't going away. You've got hours to sort it out. I sense that's right. That was Ian Paisley with a very serious end there to Talking Pints.
It's time for Barrage the Farage. I get your questions that I haven't seen before. Stuart, an email asks me, is it time for a change of leader in the Conservative Party? I don't know about a change of leader, but it hasn't got one at the moment, really, has it? Um, look, I, I've always said Boris is a great cheerleader, but not really a leader. Scott asks me, are we too reliant on the US? No, we're too reliant on China, Scott, not the US. We've got a great relationship with the US, even with Sleepy Joe in the White House. Where do you get your ties from, I'm asked? I've absolutely no idea where this one came from. Um, but there we are. Um, but I've got hundreds of them. I'm going to wear a different one every day. Look, I'm done. It's all over. It's finished. I'll be back with you tomorrow.